If we could start with a word of prayer, that would be wonderful. And then I'm going to ask you to contribute by working out something from Acts chapter 16. I haven't got the passage wrong. We're looking at James, but we're going to go to Acts chapter 16 and try and figure out who formed the new church in Philippi. So let me pray, and then I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to Acts 16, and we'll have a look at that before coming into James chapter 2, 1 to 13. Let's pray. Father, it is a a blessing and a joy to open the word together. Speak to us, we pray. Help us not only to understand the word, to not only see it clearly, but Lord, to, to know how and where to apply it. Help us, Lord, to change within ourselves through the power of your spirit, but also to change corporately as your spirit moves among us. Father, we pray for your honour and for your great name. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, so as I said, open up to Acts chapter 16, and you'll notice there's a a table on the, the screen there, and so a little theological exercise regarding favoritism. What I'll do is I'll give you a couple of verses, and I'll see if you can work out the name, the religion, the occupation, and the socioeconomic status of that particular person. Clear as mud, right? All right, so uh, in Acts chapter 16, verse 13 and following, Paul actually arrives in Philippi. He makes converts and he plants a church and he starts a church in Philippi. This all pertains to favouritism or a lack of favouritism. So have a look in your Bibles at Acts chapter 16, verse 13 through 15. I'm not going to read them to you. Have a scan over them and tell me who... What name is there of the person that is converted to Christ? Lydia. Ten points. Now, before she becomes a Christian, what is her religion? Anyone? Have a look at verse 14, halfway through. She's a worshipper of God. So she's, she's not a, a Jewish worshipper of God, but a Gentile worshipper of God, effectively a proselyte, someone who's come to believe in God and would attend uh, services in the synagogue, perhaps, uh, because of that faith in God. She becomes a Christian, obviously, but uh, we'll look at that later on. What's her occupation? She's a dealer in? Dealer in purple cloth. Now, that actually means quite a, quite a lot. I'll explain that in a minute. What do you think her socioeconomic standing is? Yeah? How high? Let's say very upper class, as upper class as you can get, because purple was worn by royalty. A dealer in purple cloth would actually uh, provide cloth 
to royalty. This woman had a house in Thyatira as well as uh, in the local area of Philippi. And, and I did a rough calculation this morning, uh, very rough. If you travel across the Aegean Sea, southeast, about 450 kilometres, a little bit inland in what is now West Turkey, you get to Thyatira. She's got a house across the sea. She's got a house in Philippi. She's rich enough to put the whole mission team up for quite some time uh, without any qualms. And so we have this lady, a fashionista to the kings and queens and royalty, who's very upper class, as upper class as you can get. Now have a look at the next passage, Acts 16, verse 16 to 18. Do we have a name for this particular person? No. So her name is unknown. Now, a little bit of speculation. I wonder if it's because she's so insignificant that she has no name. What's her religion? You probably saw the answer. Sorry? Again, a little bit of speculation. I would su- suggest that she is so poor, being owned by this couple who, for whom she's making money, that uh, she doesn't have a religion, that she's too poor to have a religion. Now, what about occupation? I mean, she's a slave, but when the demons are cast out, her ability to make money for her owners actually disappears with that. So I'd I'd, I'd suggest she's an ex-slave. She's got no potential whatsoever. She really can't do anything of value to the owners and maybe we don't know if she's kicked out or or pushed aside, but at any rate, she's effectively what we might call someone without any hope. Now, socioeconomic condition? Yes, sweetie? Thank you. Well done. So what's her socioeconomic standing? Yeah, very low. Very, very low. And so she's at the bottom of the pile. She can't, she can't bring any benefit or profit to her owners. Uh, so she's lost everything. She's got no hope. She is literally at the bottom of the pile. Now what about the third person in Acts 16, 27 through 34? Have a quick glance. Who's converted in this? What's the person's name? That's right. So we don't have a name. Now let's forget the religion for now. Let's jump down to occupation. What's the occupation? Jailer. Yep. Let's go one further. To be a jailer, you have to be a trained Roman soldier. So this guy is a Roman soldier of some standing, of some rank, uh, trained in the art of killing and harassing people and scaring people, trained in the art of warfare. If you think about a Roman soldier, what's the religion of a Roman soldier? Caesar worship. If you want to stay in the army, you bow down to the, to the statues of Caesar and you give Caesar the homage uh, that is due to him. And, of course, socioeconomically, I suspect he's somewhere in that middle class, what we might call a blue-collar worker. You think about the church at Philippi. The Bible's brutally honest. There's no sugarcoating here. With this church in Philippi, we have these people starting a service together, a rich fashionista to royalty, super rich, super upper class, an insignificant ex-slave with no potential and no name and a 
Caesar-worshipping or ex-Caesar-worshipping Roman soldier. And they stand together, arm in arm, praising and worshipping God. And you think about Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Theologians call it the epistle of joy because it's filled with joy, but that's not the key point. The point is it's filled with, in the Greek, koinonia, fellowship around the cross. And here are Christians from all walks of life gathered together, raising their arms together to God without any socioeconomic barriers, neither Scythian, barbarian, slave nor free, gathered together in Christ Jesus. And you compare that to James chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where the rich and the poor are segregated and treated with partiality or favouritism, and you get this incredible contrast. In the Philippian church, we have the arms being raised together, shoulder to shoulder, worshipping God together. People from all walks of life. And in James's church, we have the poor being snubbed and pushed to the side. We have the rich getting preferential treatment. Look at, look at the Bible in Old and New Testament, and it always espouses and, and leans us toward loving the poor, accepting people from all walks of life, worshipping together arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, side by side. The Bible always decries treating people uh, badly or differently because of their socioeconomic status or treating people in a way that is less than others because they don't come up to scratch. And so we will always be guided by the scriptures, by the spirit towards unity love and acceptance. Now, don't be tricked into thinking that favouritism is not alive and well today. Okay, there is a, a huge problem today. It's not just a, a first-century issue. It's a, it's a theological issue. It's grounded in theology with a very real and very present modern-day application. Let me share with you uh, two examples, one on either side. As I was doing my uh, Christian coaching training, there was a lady, we were online, there was a lady from Liverpool in the UK. She runs a church that meets in a community area in Liverpool. I think it was a pub, but I can't quite remember. But it was a, it was a communal, uh, community kind of area. She ministers, or the church ministers, to the hurting and the broken. The lower classes that normally won't get a, a look in come to church and are accepted and loved. There are no religious expectations. You don't need to know the songs. You don't need to understand the liturgy. You don't need to know the religious steps to go through. They're accepted for who they are and they are evangelised and grown in Christ in that church. I witnessed a church in Australia on the other side of the scale where some people in the church, praise God, went out into the streets and started giving food to the homeless. And so every, every uh, particular night of the week, they would go into a park and cook up a stack of sausages and, and uh, give sausage sandwiches and drinks to the homeless people. And what they found were these homeless people started coming into church. They wanted to know where this love of Christ is coming from. And they got to church and they were told not to sit near the regulars. They were told to sit up the back and not to venture forward among the clean living folk. 
they were told not to hang around after church. Get some morning tea, but go away. Don't hang around and talk to people. And of course, they didn't want these people to interact at all. And so this is a real, everyday problem. And what James does in chapter 2, this idea of poverty has come up, it'll come up again, he launches into a command. He goes straight into the command, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Now, as you look at the structure of this in the original language in the Greek text, it's, it's quite probable that this was something that was happening in the church, that this was a real issue that James is talking about. And so we could translate it as, my brothers and sisters, stop showing favouritism. Rather than the kind of uh, possible situation that might occur, we can read it as, stop doing this because it was a real ongoing issue. And if you, if you want to sum up what, what James is saying, there's a little equation that sums it up. Faith plus favouritism equals foolishness. So if you have faith in Christ and you add favouritism to it, you become foolish. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favouritism. But it's not just a moral duty. It's not just blind obedience. You know, the the scriptures never say, just do this. It is always based on our faith. And you notice James says that believers, the faithful ones, favoritism is not optional because of our faith in Christ. You cannot be a believer and continue to show favoritism. But then he adds this word glorious. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. A good habit to get into as you read the Bible, whether it's in church or whether it's in your, in your own quiet times. Ask yourself, why is this in the Bible? Why did the Holy Spirit move James to use the word glorious? James uses Jesus Christ twice, once in the salutation and here. Why did he put glorious here? And again, you'll need to speculate and think through the possibilities. But I can't help but wonder if glory refers to the Shekinah glory of Yahweh in the Old Testament. You know, the Lord led his people through the desert, through the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. The glory of the Lord came into the temple as Solomon was praying. If it refers to the Lord of glory, then it helps tie the whole passage together. See, that word, Lord of glory, was used by Jews as a euphemism for Yahweh, and especially in the context of judgment. When God was bringing judgment, the Jews would talk about the Lord of glory. And that concept of judgment's about to come up in verse 4, it's going to come up in verse 12, and it brings the whole passage together. Food for thought. Why does James talk about the glorious Lord Jesus Christ? But he says, as we believe in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. Again, it's a strange word, which literally means to lift up one's face or one's countenance. It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom, and it means you show partiality towards a person because of their outward appearance. So someone who, who looks nice 
gets preferential treatment. And of course, James is saying, don't do that. Don't show partiality to someone because of their appearance. And again, I kind of wonder, you, know, you think about Jesus in Luke 20, 21, in Mark 12, 14, Matthew twenty two sixteen. Jesus was renowned for not showing partiality. He didn't care whether you were a Pharisee or a pauper. He didn't care if you were educated or uneducated. He shared the kingdom of God with you. He proclaimed the gospel to you. He called you to follow himself. And I can't help but wonder if James is picking up on that Christ did not show favoritism in his ministry in earth. So he, he gives the command and then he gives us a case in point. Now it's very, it's very simple. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say to him, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. So a rich man comes into the meeting. He's wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. He's got the, the Armani suit, the Gucci shoes, the Rolex watch. And, and if you take it literally, he's gold-fingered. He, his fingers are covered in jewels. In, in Roman days, you could go to a vendor and rent gold rings to show your wealth, to show where you stood in society. In comes a man who is dressed to the hilt. And you know he's rich. He just oozes wealth. But behind him comes a poor man. He's in filthy old clothes. You know, we have a lounge at home and it's got the, the undercover. Now, whenever you touch that undercover, it just disintegrates. That's what we're talking about. Old, filthy, worn-out kind of clothes. Someone who is completely destitute. And so two people come into the meeting and, of course, the rich man, the one who's got all that potential, gets special attention. Sit in this good seat. Put, you, you put him where everyone can see him, where he can watch everything, where he can be appreciated, where he feels important. But you say to the poor man, stand there. Don't go over there near the nice people. Sit here on the floor because I don't know what you're capable of. Sit here by the floor because I don't trust you. Sit here by the floor because you're not worthy to go and sit anywhere else. When you think about this kind of favouritism, isn't it tempting? Isn't it very tempting to see the rich and to pander to the rich and to think, hey, here comes the financial saviour of the church. And if we have more rich people coming into the church, we get more giving, and so you be extra nice to them. You think about the well-educated when they come into the church and you think, wow, this person could teach Sunday school. This person could run the youth group. This person could run the courses through the week that we're not able to run and you pander to them. You think about those who could fill the ministry holes in the church and it's very tempting to be nice to them. And I've fallen into these temptations myself. You see the poor and the destitute coming in and they've got hard work written on their forehead. And I know what it's like to think, well, I better see so-and-so before church finishes. I've got six other meetings to go and all the while hoping that they leave before I have to talk to them. It's easy and tempting to see the destitute as draining resources. And of course, we don't have an unlimited budget, so let's hope they go before 
they drain the resources. And we can easily think about the broken as a waste of time because they won't contribute. And if you've been in ministry long enough, you realise that people will go to one church and drain the resources and go to another church and drain the resources and go to another church and drain the resources. And we're tempted to show favouritism. So James lays down the command up front. He gives a case in point that's probably one that's happened or happening and he draws a conclusion. And this is a hard-hitting conclusion. So if you do this, says James, says, haven't you discriminated among yourselves? Haven't you become judges with evil thoughts? You're judging people made in God's image. You're destroying the image of God and allowing another image to rise to the surface and determine how you treat them. You're allowing your evil thoughts and reasoning to lead you down the wrong path. The equation is very simple. Faith plus favouritism equals foolishness. And what James does is he, he, he ties that all together and then he starts giving us three reasons why favouritism is forbidden. He looks at it from the perspective of the poor, he looks at it from the perspective of the rich, and then he looks at it from the perspective of God's love. But before he gets there, before he starts on the perspectives, he, he, he calls us to listen you know, a bit like the, the Shema of Israel in the wilderness. Hear, O Israel, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Now, if James were preaching, he'd be pounding the pulpit saying, hear this if you hear nothing else. And he wants us to pay attention. Showing favouritism is inconsistent with God's choice of the poor. Look at verse 5 to 6a. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. James is not saying if you're below a certain income level, you're automatically saved. If you've done it tough all your life, don't worry, you'll go to heaven, you've got nothing to worry about. That is plain heresy. You notice that phrase, at the end of verse 5, to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. And he puts it there as, as if you like, a safety net. Being poor doesn't qualify you for salvation. You still need to repent and believe in Christ. But the New Testament does show very clearly that the majority of people in the church were relatively poor. And let me give you a verse that backs that up. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you, so, so some were, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influ influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. So God chooses the poor and lavishes them with his love. And I think about that nameless ex-slave of Acts 16. You think about her standing in Christ if she came to faith in Jesus. God sent Jesus to die on the cross for her sins. 
as much as for my sins. She is not on probation because of her past life. It's not like God has said to this ex-slave, you've got three months to prove yourself. When you, when you start a job nowadays, you're often on probation for three or so months. You've got to prove yourself. There's no probationary period in God's kingdom. She is as much loved as you and I are, even though her past is filled with negativity and poverty. She's as much God's child as you and I are from the moment she puts her faith in Christ. And you think of all the Old Testament commands, all the New Testament commands to care for the poor. God does not discriminate against the poor. And and as I was thinking through this passage, I, I, I had to ask myself, would I qualify for salvation if God discriminated or showed favoritism towards the rich? See, I've never been wealthy in terms of the world. I've never been noble or of particular birth. And I wouldn't qualify. And so showing favoritism, decrying the poor and pandering to the rich is inconsistent with God's choice of the poor. Faith plus favoritism is foolishness. But it's also inconsistent with the the conduct of the rich. 6b and verse 7. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, legally, in Roman days, if a, if a creditor saw a debtor in the marketplace, you could grab them around the scruff of the neck. You, you, could, you could literally uh, choke them by the scruff of the neck, not, not kill them, not commit murder, but choke them and drag them to the courts and have them be forced to pay up or sold into slavery or so, selling their assets so you can have the debt owed to you. You think about the, the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. The servant goes to the master and says, look, I've got this huge debt I can't pay. Can you, can you spare me this debt? Can you write this debt off? And the master says, okay, I will cancel the debt. And here's what we read, Matthew 18, 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, my comment, not 10,000 talents. So we owed him some, you know, some hundreds of dollars, not millions of dollars. His millions have been cancelled He's owed a few hundred dollars. He grabbed him and began to choke him. This is not standover tactics. This is not throttling him, trying to put fear in him, but grabbing him by the, the collar around the robe and possibly about to drag him back to the master so he can pay back what he's owed. So it's a it's a lack of mercy. It's a lack of compassion. It's a lack of forgiveness. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of the, of the one to whom you belong? It's the rich who are charging you exorbitant interest rates. It's the rich who are not giving you compassion if you can't pay up. It's the rich who are dragging you by the scruff into court and selling you into slavery or selling your assets, making it uh, that you have to pay. Look what James does now. He actually brings out the big guns. Think about the Old Testament. What was a punishment for blasphemy in the Old Testament? Death. 
And so he's equating this with something that deserves the death sentence. The way the rich are treating you is a blasphemy against the noble name of God and Christ. And these guys are blaspheming. Why are you pandering up to them? Faith plus favouritism, I've lost it again, equals foolishness. But it's also inconsistent from God's perspective with the law of love. Now, this is not just a random thought. You know, sometimes as you, you need to write an essay or, or, or an article, you've got to fill space and think, what else can I say? James is not trying to figure out something else to say. Think about why. Ask yourself when you read the Bible, why is this here? Why does James go to the law of love? Why does he talk about this here and now? Well, maybe the congregation were saying something like, we're showing love for our rich neighbour. We're being nice to that rich man because God commands us to love our neighbour as ourselves. We're treating him the way that we want to be treated. And think about it, who wouldn't want to go to church and be treated as a visitor, being given the best seat in the house, being pandered to, uh, having pavlova brought to them over morning tea? That is very much a hint. Um, it's, it's something we all want. See what James does? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. So if that's what you're doing, if you're loving your rich neighbour, fantastic, praise God, hallelujah, keep doing it. But, see the but? If you show favouritism, if you actually decry the poor person and treat them poorly, you're actually a sinner, says James. So he's not holding back, he's not pulling the punches, he's actually really letting them have it. And you are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. So you've kept a part of the law, but you've actually broken the law in another spot. And think about it like this. Let's say that the government brings out a law and says, if you're a good driver, you'll get a $1,000 bonus at the end of the year. Okay? Now, am I a good driver if I do this? I stick to or under the speed limit at all times. You think, yeah, that makes someone a good driver. But what if I say stop signs are for imbeciles and people who don't know how to read road conditions? Anyone who stops at a stop sign is really driving poorly. What if I treat pedestrian crossings as immaterial and say, well, my car's bigger than you, so get out of the way? You see, what I've done, I've kept the law over here, but by breaking it over here, I've just cancelled any claim to goodness. I don't get my $1,000 bonus. If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. Fantastic. Praise God. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And then James draws it out to explain it. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. My good driving is ruined by my attitude to stop signs and pedestrian crossings. You think about eternally. How many unforgiven sins does it take to get into hell? One. It only takes one sin that's unforgiven. And so you've only got to transgress the law at one point and you've broken 
all of it. God, who said you shall not commit adultery, also said do not commit murder. And then James postulates if you don't commit adultery but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. All the good is negated and you're in deep trouble. Favoritism is inconsistent with the law of love. It's inconsistent with loving your neighbour as yourself. And we're commanded to to love our neighbour as ourselves, but we don't get the choice of who our neighbour is. We can't pick and choose and say, you'll make a good neighbour, you're not so good, I'll leave you over there. We love our neighbour, whoever that neighbour may be. You think about Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 5, simply loving the lovable is not Christian. Because Jesus made it very clear, even tax collectors and sinners do that. All groups of people love their own. Being spirit-filled believers, we're called to a higher level. Just loving the lovable is not God-honouring. And again, I had to ask myself, did God love me because I was lovable? I would love to say yes, but it's not true. Or did he love me because he's a God of love? And despite my sins, he dealt with them at the cross, paid for them in full and adopted me into his family, even though I was unlovable. Faith plus favouritism equals foolishness. James then gives us three motivations to flee from favoritism. Fleeing favoritism is fostered by three things in verses 12 and 13. Again, let me read out Christian obedience is never just a sense of duty. It's never just a stiff upper lip, just do it and get over it. It's never a, if you do this, you will earn your salvation. It is never just unthinking, blind obedience. It is always motivated by God's love and God's salvation. I respond to God's love by walking in obedience. So verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Now that causes us some consternation. We we get all knotted up because it's hard to understand because there are these contradicting ideas of freedom versus judgment. If I'm free, if there's no condemnation in Christ, Romans A1, how can I be judged? See that the law that gives freedom. Now we've got to understand this is not the Torah. It's not the law or the first five books of the Bible. If you try and keep the Torah to earn salvation, it leads to condemnation. Galatians 3.11 and a host of passages makes that clear. You can't earn your salvation by doing good deeds. You can't win God's favour by ticking boxes in the law and keeping them all. The law that gives freedom is a new law that Jesus set up, free from condemnation and filled by or empowered by the Holy Spirit. You think about the the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, hey, it's not just physical adultery that's an issue, it's actually having adulterous thoughts in your heart that commits adultery. It's not just murder in a physical sense. If you hate your brother or your sister in Christ, then, hey, that's murder. The law is taken to its spiritual level and and, and we're not condemned when 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 we fall short of the law we're actually forgiven 
and we're empowered by the Spirit to get up and to keep striving towards holiness and righteousness. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. So how are we judged? Now we've got to remember judgment doesn't always equal condemnation. We hear the word judge, we don't think or we shouldn't automatically go to hellfire and brimstone and you've lost your salvation. Okay? Think of judge in terms of giving an account to God. Romans 14, 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Not in the condemnation sense, but in the reckoning sense to God. Think about it like this. Your child does something to cause this. Yeah, oh. Now, what do you do with your child? You don't adopt them out. You don't stop loving them. You don't hate them eternally. So as God's children, he's not going to hate us eternally. He's not going to adopt us out and reverse his salvation. But we do hold our children to account. We do try and figure out what happened. We do discipline them. And we do walk them through it to grow them, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Faith plus favoritism equals foolishness. And now what Paul, uh, sorry, what James does is flip it over and look at the other side because here's how you ought to speak and act because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. So this is the flip side of verse 12. You think about our actions and our words. Don't they show what's in our heart? Don't they, they actually reveal what we truly believe? And so if my actions are without mercy, then I am like that unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. If I, if I receive God's forgiveness and can't forgive someone who owes me a smaller debt, Maybe I haven't actually received God's mercy. I'm like the one in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus comments immediately after, if you refuse to forgive those who sin against you, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. So if I, if I don't genuinely receive God's forgiveness, I don't let that flow outwards. And I'm like, next week you'll be looking, I suspect, at James 2, 16 and 17. Genuine faith shows mercy to those in need. If I don't show mercy, then my faith is a false faith and it has no saving potential. Faith plus favouritism is foolishness. And thirdly, James says, to remember that mercy triumphs over judgment. You think about the end times when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead. They will be judged in perfect righteousness. No one will sneak past God's judgment. Now, it's not like someone who ignores Jesus for his whole life can sort of come up to God and say, well, hey, hey, God, remember all those good things I've done? There are so many of them. It outweighs my bad. I deserve to get into heaven. There's no sense in which God will say, oh, you're right, I made a mistake and let him in. You see, there will be a just judgment. No one will be treated unjustly. No one will be treated unfairly. Everyone will receive their due rewards. Every sin, transgression and evil will be paid for. It's on that day, those who turn to Jesus in repentance and faith in this life 
Mercy will triumph over judgment once and for all. There'll be no more judgment. There'll be no more discipline. There'll be no more negatives, no sin, no tears, no crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away and the new will have come. And again, I think about myself. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God had every right to send me to hell. He would have been perfectly just in doing that. But God was not compelled to save me. There was nothing in my actions that that said, you must save Essa. There were no deeds good enough to warrant that conclusion. And yet he reached out in mercy. He reached out with love and compassion. He sent Jesus in mercy to die on the cross for my sins. He adopted me into his family by his mercy. He sealed me with the Holy Spirit by his mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And what I should see is that mercy triumphing over judgment in my outward life towards others. It's triumphed in my life through Christ. I need to see it flowing outwards towards others. I need to make sure that I haven't become a judge with evil thoughts, lacking mercy towards the poor or the needy or the downtrodden or whoever it may be. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Faith plus favouritism is foolishness. You remember the church at Philippi? We had a rich fashionista, high class, super high class, standing side by side, worshipping together with an unknown ex-slave who has no potential in life, no assets, probably no income, and a blue-collar middle class once... Caesar worshipping Roman soldier, all standing together, arm in arm, lifting up voices of praise to God. Mercy triumphs over judgment as we refuse to show favouritism, as we adopt everyone who comes in, regardless of their background, regardless of their socioeconomic status. We accept and love all believers from all walks of life. And we worship together with pure hearts, not sort of begrudging those over there, not pushing other people away, but arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, hands raised together for the glory of God with one voice, one heart, declaring the praises of him who called us together out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let me pray. Father, you've lavished us with love. You've poured your mercy over upon us. You've given us more than we deserve, more than we could ever earn. So we pray that as you fill us with your Holy Spirit, as you lead us and guide us, that mercy will triumph over judgment in our outward lives, that we would be compassionate and merciful to those in need, that we would look upon all peoples being in the image of God and not judging them by their socioeconomic standards, by their dress, by their wealth, by their education or anything external, but seeing them as bearers of the image of God. Father, we pray that your compassion flowing into us will flow outwards to make a real and substantial change in this world. Father, we pray that individually and we pray that 
corporately. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.